Welcome to the Griffith in Asia podcast. Today's seminar is presented by Associate Professor David Shack. His topic, Civility and its Discontents in the People's Republic of China, Tension Between Social Enclaves and Society. Thank you. I must defer to Colin Brown, whose staff number is probably the only one that's lower than mine here. Colin McCarris would be in the same, same situation. I'm basically today I'm going to talk more about about the PRC than about Taiwan because I've written a paper on Taiwan and uh, I'm gathering getting my material rather for a book uh, on the comparison. In 1963, an article appeared in the Zhongyang Rebao, the Central Daily News in Taiwan, which is the official newspaper of the Kuomintang Party, in which a foreign graduate student uh, studying at National Taiwan University said that. Whereas the Chinese were, had ample human-heartedness, wrenching way, they were very deficient in gongdexin or public morality. Um, and within a day or two, this sparked off a huge uh, campaign on the various university campuses of, you know, we must we must improve our our behavior and so on be, to to keep up the uh, the nation and and so on in order not to let the country down. And the campaign specified various violations of public morality, spread to other campuses, but just as quickly as it started off, it died out. By 1969, when I went to Taiwan to do my first field research, although the campaign was gone, it was still a public issue. It was still people were still talking about it and so on. And I sort of thought about this. I'd been in Taiwan uh, prior to that time and had seen a lot of things that people were talking about. And I sort of made notes of things as I, as I went along doing other field research on other projects over the years. And then I began writing, uh, began writing this up in the 1990s. I uh, published a paper about civility in Taiwan and got a grant to extend this research to the People's Republic with an idea of being able to compare two very, very similar societies had very similar cultural backgrounds and governance backgrounds as a way to try to understand what is necessary to bring about civility in society. And similarities between them have to do with the way they were, as I say, the way they were governed, uh, their historical backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and so on. Now, as far as civility is concerned, civility, put simply, is simply being considerate. I have two aspects in the way I look at civility. One is how people treat others, in particular strangers. Being able to treat strangers as fellow human beings, seeing those fellow human beings and treating them as such. And also, people having a stakeholdership with the public space and with public facilities. In other words, the public space is something in which we, we, we want to keep it nice, we want to keep it clean, and, uh, and so on. And we will not deface public buildings, we will not steal public property, uh, and the, these kinds of things. And it implies a, a, a notion of public, that all in society are moral beings, and as moral beings, they're deser they, they deserve our consideration as such, they deserve a modicum of civil treatment. Now, in China, there was a model of society that came, uh, came from a very famous anthropologist, Fei Xiaotong, called the Differential Mode of Association, Cha Shu Guju, in which if you think about a, a pond, you drop a stone into a pond and then you get concentric circles or ripples out. Well, the closest circle is people's own family. And then it extends out to, to further kin and to their associates, the people they know, the people they're friends with and so on. But once it stops, 
There's nothing. There are strangers. And strangers in Chinese society were generally distrusted. And so there was, there was a, a notion, society basically was my own people, my own people within this that I associate with, but it does not go beyond that. And Chinese, whereas we look at society as dog-eat-dog, dog, Chinese saw society as ren-shi-ren, people-eat-people. Uh, the outside society was regarded as relatively hostile, and so there was a distrust of strangers. And of course, particularly in traditional times, in, pre, in, in dynastic times, China was, for the most part, a lot of villages that had contact, had contact with a market town, but they didn't go much beyond the market town area. Most people never went more than 50 kilometers from the place they were born in their entire lives. So their knowledge of other people was really very scant. And also, you have people speaking with different accents, uh, different dialects, uh, even different languages. I mean, Shanghainese and Cantonese have no more relationship to Mandarin than German, and German has to English. And they're quite different. They're quite different languages. And so, to develop civility, which is the purpose of this research, uh, is a qualitative change in ideas is needed. Uh, Habermas, when he talked about the development of a public sphere, he talked about a number of different institutional changes that that, that took place that made this possible. There was a change in business from small family businesses to 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 corporations to joint stock companies. Uh, and with this, you get things such as share exchanges and things such as this. There were changes in government where that rather than the, the government being simply the ruler's family and the treasury being the ruler's treasury, you begin to get a separate bureaucracy that comes up uh, that run things in a sense separate from the, the ruler, particularly the kings, kings themselves. And so to bring civility into a society, to a traditional society, means a qualitative change in way people, the way people see their society. That it becomes inclusive of, in a sense, the entire nation rather than just their own small circle. Now I've tried to operationalize, in, in the paper I did on Taiwan, I, I spent several pages talking about what, civi what civility is and where it comes from and so on. It's a relatively new concept even in the West. Uh, Elias talks about it coming about in the 16th, 17th centuries as we go from the feudal system goes into larger courts and so on. And if the nobles from the smaller courts want to be welcome at the larger courts, they had to behave decently. And the way he describes the way they behaved, it was anything but decent. They were a pretty, pretty wild lot, actually. But people talk about it more or less metaphorically as to, as to what it means and so on. I've tried to operationalize it by observing specific behavior, which is named in the in various campaigns in, that have been take, carried out by Chinese governments since the 19, 1920s, 1930s, into such things as littering, spit, spitting, smoking, uh, queuing, road behavior, uh, treatment of strangers, philanthropy, and so on. And the question then, and I've been asked this question when I've given seminars on this before, am I imposing something which is Western on China? No, I'm not. I'm taking things that Chinese, the Chinese governments, from the Guomindang government in the 1920s through to the governments of the People's Republic of China, even now, are, are, are putting on uh, people themselves. All of these things that I'm looking at are things that are, are looked at 
in, uh, in, in these various societies and by these various governments. And one of the things I've done in, in the research, which I won't go into today, is I've done an analysis of school books, moral education school books, from the 1980s and the, and the 2000s uh, in both Taiwan and China, and looking at is there a difference between the way they look at civility and the rules of civility, and there's none. And all of these things, again, obviously in primary school school books, they don't talk about smoking behavior, but they do talk about uh, classroom order and order out of class and things such as this. And so this is the, all of these things come from the Chinese themselves. The research is based on my own observations over time in Taiwan and in the People's Republic and uh, looking at secondary accounts, discussing my findings with people, asking them about their own observations and so on, and everything gels uh, to come together at, at the way I'm looking at, uh, at civility. Now, Taiwan and the PRC, as I mentioned, are two very similar societies in many ways. Going back into dynastic times, or going back to Confucian times, education has been seen as the basis for being, for being rulers, for being leaders. Uh, we start off basically tabula rasa. We become decent human beings through education. Education was, as it was in the West, it was basically moral. And the, the notion of, of zi, zi in China, of, of self-refinement, through educating oneself, one becomes a more civil uh, human being, a, a better human being, and so on. And so they distinguished in Confucian times between uh, the, the so-called junzi, which were the refined people, and the, the masses, the hoi polloi. And it was the duty, the duty of the educated, refined people to educate the masses in turn. And there were various programs uh, uh, for this, particularly from the Song Dynasty onward, for the, the literati to give lectures to the masses twice a month and to tell them how they should behave. In the 20th century, there have been civilizing campaigns by both the Republic of China government, the Chiang Kai-shek government uh, in Taiwan, and by the People's Republic government in China. The ROC started off with the New Life Movement in the 1930s, uh, which was to try to get the Chinese to be more, to be more hygienic, to be more polite, to be more confident, to be more disciplined, to be more patriotic, uh, to see the country as their, as their own country rather than to see society as, as simply their own small group of people. When the PRC government took over China in 1949, the ROC government moved to Taiwan, uh, and they kept up having minor campaigns from time to time, trying to improve traffic behavior, trying to improve pedestrian behavior, uh, trying to uh, clear the, the footpaths of, of hawkers, and so on, so that people could actually use them to, to get from place to place, and so on. And in 1966, they came up with something called the Cultural Renaissance. Well, in the PRC, 1966 is the Cultural Revolution. And so, well, they're revolutionizing or ruining Chinese culture, but we are preserving Chinese culture. And part of this had to do with their appeal to the overseas Chinese, to show them who the really were the culturally legitimate rulers of, of, of China. And the Cultural Renaissance, you can see the 
effects of this in the school books that I looked at, from the particularly from the 1980s, 70s, and 80s in Taiwan. Campaigns in the People's Republic, the PRC has uh, government, particularly under Mao, but it basically is governed by campaigns. There were many, many campaigns prior to 1949, and then there were a, n- a number of them uh, after that time. The first, most of them were political and economic, but the, the first one that actually looked at civil behavior was the Lei Feng, the, the learning from Lei Feng. Lei Feng was a soldier, uh, and he died at around age 21 or 22. And his diary were, was found a year after he died. And in his diary, it talks about all the things, the good deeds that he did for people. And he was doing good deeds. He must have been doing good deeds 36 hours a day to fulfill what his diary said. Uh, but he would do thing, everything from helping old ladies across the street to buying a train ticket for someone who's lost his money and wants to go home to darning other soldiers' socks and so on. And as I say, it's very convenient that he died a year before his diaries were found uh, because I think he's a creation of the, of the government rather than anything real. Uh, he was, uh, Lei Feng was something who did, did good things for people. The problem then was that in Chinese society, for civility to, to exist in a society, society basically has to have no outcasts. And in China at that time, there were outcasts. There were the enemies of the people, the, the five black categories who were not regarded, who were not given citizenship, in fact, uh, and could be bullied virtually at any time. Uh, we go to the 1980s, the early 1980, the government. Uh, after, after Mao dies, Deng Xiaoping brings in a, a system where he says, okay, forget about class struggle. We're not going to disrupt society with class struggle anymore. We're going to develop economically. And he also brought in a campaign called the Five Stresses and the Four Beauties, and soon afterwards the Three Loves were added to that, and you can see them on the, on the screen. Civil manners, pro- civil propriety, cleanliness, order, morality, the four beauties, beauty, beauty in spirit, beauty in language, beauty in behavior, beauty in environment, and the three loves, love of the party, love of the country, and love of socialism. And also accompanying this was the getting people to speak the five polite phrases. These are phrases based, most of, most of which really came in through Western influence. I mean, there were other ways of people greeting each other in China, in Chinese. You didn't say, how are you? Uh, you said something like, oh, where are you going? Or have you eaten today? Or something like this. Just acknowledge, <coughs> acknowledging someone's presence. So getting people to speak these five polite phrases and getting them not to use what was called the, the guoma, the national curse. The national curse is tamada, which means having illicit relations with someone's, uh, with someone's mother. So you know, getting people to stop using this, which is used so commonly in Chinese that it's, you know, it's almost like saying hello. Uh, this was followed up by a, a, a campaign on, on quality, being a quality individual. And a quality individual is someone who is civil. Uh, and again, this has to do with being better educated, but it's also, according to one of our former graduate students who wrote her thesis on this, It was a way of the government saying, you people are all inadequate. You need the government to show you how to be a proper human being. Uh, So it's a a continuation of the maintenance of of dependency on people. 
Then there were campaigns in, in the 2000s, welcome the Olympics, or welcome National Day, or welcome the World Expo, plus stress civility, and establish new customs. And then there have also been rural campaigns, the five-star households or the ten-star households of, you know, you get points for, being, for, for doing various things. And in some of those campaigns, one of the most important things in them is to get mother-in-law and daughter-in-law to get along properly with each other because they live in the same household. And it's always been a, 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 place of, a form of stress in Chinese uh, social structure. Now, looking at, as I say, I've, I've looked at uh, Taiwan social, uh, civil behavior. Tai and most of what I'm talking about in China, I'll talk about, you get the same sorts of things happening in Taiwan up until around the 1990s, and then suddenly Taiwan changes, and people become very civil. So much so that now, when people from the PRC go as tourists to Taiwan, they're utterly amazed at how polite, how nice, how thoughtful, how genuine uh, the people in Taiwan are. In looking at the, the, these various things, road behavior, well, road behavior is shocking. Uh, it's uh, China, China, China is still basically in the learning stage in terms of in terms of road behavior. But the number of automobiles has increased greatly over the past probably the past seven or eight years. I was in Beijing, <coughs> teaching in Beijing from two, in 2009, large part 2009. In December, the uh, China Daily had an article and said that the four millionth car came to Beijing. A year later, the five millionth car had come to Beijing. And now Beijing basically rational, uh, rations their road space so that the odd numbers, uh, people with odd numbers license plates can drive on certain days and people with even number license plates can drive on other days, which increases the sales of automobiles because people have to have two cars if they want to be able to drive all the time. <laughs> Traffic is disorderly. Right of way is, is, is honored in the breach. Pedestrians are, are in danger from, rule, uh, from uh, vehicles making turns, but they in turn also ignore uh, road and safety rules. I say driving in China is a, is a new thing. People haven't been driving that long. Most people, until the 2000s at least, if they rode in a car at all, it would probably have been a taxi. Or if they rode in a, in a private car, it would be a car driven by the family chauffeur because the father was, had a, a, a position high enough that he would have a, a car and a chauffeur. So no one really paid any attention to driving themselves. Whereas, you know, we grew up in, in, in Australia or the United States, you're driving, you're driving in cars and you see your parents driving and, you know, you, you, you see things just uh, in, in this way. But, you know, if you're sitting in the back seat with a chauffeur, you simply don't pay any attention. And so being a, being a driver on a fast road or being a pedestrian where there's a fast road uh, is, is quite a new thing. I did research in, in the mid-1990s in a place uh, in Dongguan, uh, southern China, and uh, there was a highway there, Highway 7, three lanes each way, very wide road, and cars, it, uh, the, the vehicles on the road were everything from large lorries to very fast Mercedes Benzes to three-wheeled motorized uh, trishaws. And there weren't very many places for people to cross the road. And these workers from the, from the hinterland, you know, coming from small villages and so on, they would cross the road, an un, a very poorly lit road, 
They're, they're the wearing dark clothes themselves. They would cross this road at night, you know, having to run to the middle and then maybe climb over a barrier and then run to the other side. And, you know, you wonder why more people didn't get killed, but quite a number of them did. Peter Hessler, uh, a New Yorker correspondent who's written a book called Driving, uh, Country Driving, he took the exam in China. He said, he said it's a, you do a 58-hour course of driving, but you don't really learn that much. And then there's a large exam, and some of the exam questions, you, you'd, you'd laugh at the exam questions, at the side of the exam questions they had. The traffic code is only, is only evolving now. There have been traffic laws only in this, this century. Drink driving was outlawed only a few years ago, and that came after a number of wealthy people or powerful people's children had accidents killing people when they were driving under the influence of alcohol. And if you've ever been drinking with Chinese, you, you can understand how under the influence they can become. An anecdote from James Fallows il illustrates the lack of rule-based rule behavior on Chinese roads. He says a Chinese engineer visiting Florida was taking a picture of a school bus that had stopped when police intervened. What the police saw was an adult male taking pictures of a bus containing children. What the engineer saw was a stopped school bus with its do not pass flashers and stop sign operating and other traffic obeying these signs rather than trying to go around it or honking their horn or doing some other sorts of things. He says, you'd have motorbikes cutting past on the, side, on the sidewalk, cars veering into the opposite direction lane to get around the obstacle a cacophony of horns complaining about any vehicle that did, that did slow down. And in general, the creative chaos that extends from many other parts of Chinese life to its roadways. In China, if you leave a safe distance between your car and the next, another car will cut in. People make sudden lane changes. Uh, t a taxi driver, they said, people never use their rivers and mirrors. They just cut in. I've seen this, missing, someone misses an exit on a freeway. And so they go over to the shoulder and they back up, they reverse to get back to the exit, and then they exit. And pedestrians, well, pedestrians cross roads safely with Chinese characteristics. Several factors are germane to this sort of road behavior. One is that other people on the roads are strangers. And strangers are people from whom you expect nothing, whom you owe nothing. Drivers are aggressive, impatient, and of course if you're in a car you're bigger than pedestrians so they better look out for you. And in, in China people, they drive on the right, and you can, make, you can make a right turn after a stop, except that somehow cars don't stop, they just go through. And so if you're crossing a road you have to look in back of you uh, to make sure that there's no car coming that's going to you know, get you from the rear. I once mentioned to a taxi driver in, in Beijing, I said, you know, if everyone obeyed the traffic rules, people would get to their destinations quicker. And he said, yes, but they're afraid they will lose out. They're afraid that someone else will take advantage of them if they, if they do this, if they, if they act politely. Um, and there's also the notion of people want to zheng xian, they, they have to be first. And so you have these characteristics that make people much, much more aggressive drivers. Interaction between strangers, uh, pedestrian interaction. People generally avoid eye contact. 
Strangers are simply living parts of living obstacles on the road or on the or on the footpath. They're simply there. They don't. They're, they're in a sense. They're not really other people. And I've seen this a number of times, and I've asked other people who've seen the same thing. There's kind of a game of chicken where you're walking one way and someone else is walking toward you, and they're looking beyond you. They will not make eye contact. And the idea is that you have to move, otherwise you'll bump into each other. People on bicycles do the same sort of thing. I used to see this kind of behavior in Taiwan in the 60s and 70s, but then since when Taiwan has become more, more civil, you don't have it any longer. Now, this can take several variations. Someone coming along, uh, you're walking along the road, and someone's coming along over here, and suddenly changes direction right in front of you, forcing you to stop or take evasive action. Or a group standing across a footpath, blocking it while they're chatting and so on, forcing people to step into the road. People sitting on a, in, a, in a crowded, maybe a student dining hall, with their chair far away from the table, which means that there's no passage for people to get through. Um, or a person on a train, sitting in the next seat, uh, assuming both passengers are male. And the person, first of all, they push their knees apart to go over, in a sense, their, the area for their seat, and then they expand their elbows. And it's the idea of getting, just getting a bit more space for oneself. There was a book written in the, about World War II called Shandong Compound, about um, uh, prisoners of war, foreign prisoners of war who were in a Japanese compound in Shandong. And they found a similar sort of thing where people were in barracks, and so they had their beds, and someone would move their bed maybe a couple of centimeters to one side. Again, just the, the kind of the satisfaction of getting a bit more space for them, oneself at the expense of someone else. It's kind of the notion of, of, of invisible strangers. People making no apology for bumping into someone else. Uh, in one of the school books, there's a story about, about Tianjin, the city in China. And there was a, that people on buses, when they would bump into someone else or step on their feet, they would you know, ignore it. But after a campaign, people became more, more civil, and so someone would bump into someone else and say, oh, excuse me, oh, nothing, don't worry about it. So that, that, you know, with this campaign, basically what this, the books are trying to say is that this is the way people should behave. Ignoring someone, let's say you're walking through a doorway, and you, you're aware that someone is behind you, maybe they're carrying packages or pushing a baby uh, a stroller or something like this, and just ignoring them and letting the door slam in their face. Trying to get on lifts or on subways without letting people get off first. Or having found a seat on public transport vehicles, ignoring standing passengers, even when one should yield a seat. And they're signed, you know, yield your seat to a woman with children, or a pregnant woman, or an old person, or you know, someone carrying a lot of packages, this sort, this sort of thing. And uh, people ignore this. And one of the ways of doing it is that someone gets a seat and immediately they fall asleep. Recently, I read something that the elderly in China are fighting back, that they're actually confronting people who don't give them seats, and, and even, even being physical with you, you know, whacking them with their, with their brawly or something like that. Oh, yeah, the, all right, the formal introduction. In a sense, ignoring people that you, you see all the time, maybe someone who works in the same building on the same floor as you, but unless you've been introduced, you would never nod your head or say hello. 
And something needs to break this barrier to stop people from being strangers and being someone with whom someone is acquainted. Disturbing other people, uh, making noise. Uh, Chinese restaurants are very noisy. And Chinese tourists are known for being very, very loud in, in airport lounges and restaurants and tourist places and so on. And this is, this is something, again, the school books that I looked at actually have a lesson which shows that this is not the proper way to behave. Uh, and I've seen Chinese when, uh, when you know, someone, a group of party comes into a restaurant and they're talking very loudly. They put their hands up to their ears to you know, show that they're not happy about the noise. Um, and even arguing in public, uh, people getting into, into, into arguments in public. Peter Hessler in his, in his country driving book talks about this as sort of local entertainment so that a couple gets into an argument and the neighbors come around and, you know, just listening in for kind of the pure uh, reality TV pleasure of it. Smoking. Smoking, there are bans, in, uh, bans on smoking in restaurants and ca you know, cafes, any rooms, in schools, inside buildings, in airport lounges, but these signs are often ignored. I was in a restaurant in, in, uh, in Shanghai, which was known as the, the best Hangzhou food in, in Shanghai. There were signs all over, no smoking, no smoking. Almost every table had somebody smoking there, and I said to my host, I said, you know, what about the no smoking? And he said, well, you know, we have these signs, but we, won't, we, don't, we don't push it. We don't push the point, which is the point. They don't push it, and so nothing happens. And for some reason, no smoking doesn't mean no smoking in public toilets. It does, but you go into a public toilet. I mean, I've been in public toilets, even in the, the Shanghai and the Beijing airports, and you go into the, the men's room and you smell smoke in there. So, it, again, it's just ignoring rules. This, they've never had to obey these rules, and they're not doing it now. In terms of ignoring rules, something from a primary school textbook. It was a story about a baby giraffe in a zoo. Children who visited the zoo loved the giraffe. In fact, they loved it so much that despite signs forbidding it, they fed it, sometimes giving it fruit inside plastic bags. And the giraffe died, and the children were very saddened, according to the story. Well, this actually happened. In 1996, a giraffe at the Shanghai Zoo died after eating food in plastic bags. The zoo then put up a three-meter sign saying, for animals, plastic bags are murder weapons. Yet in 2014, that same zoo visit, uh, said that people kept throwing plastic uh, drink bottles into the lion's cage, which could only be cleaned once a day when the lions were being fed. So it, it was quite, quite bad. And a similar accident or incident happened in a Xiamen wildlife park where a deer, after a deer died, an autopsy showed that it had four kilograms of plastic waste in its stomach. <clears throat> now, why? Why this not obeying rules? Well, one reason is that China, Chinese societies always had a lot of rules, but they've rarely ever been enforced. And so, you know, people are just habitual about this. Also, I think Confucianism and the notion of being an educated, proper person sets the bar very, very high. It's very difficult to live up to this, so people, in when they're asked about it, they always, oh yes, we should do that, we should do that, we should do that, but then they go off and do whatever they want to do. There's also a double standard between what people are taught in school 
and what they learned through observation on the outside. Richard Solomon, a political scientist who taught at Rutgers, did his PhD in Taiwan in the 1960s on political socialization by looking at how people, uh, children in, in primary schools are taught about leadership, followership, obeying rules, being part of the group, being uh, excluded from the group, and so on. And one of the things that the school did was for fifth and sixth graders, they had them on one day, they could pretend that you were the city government. So somebody's the mayor, somebody's the police chief, somebody's the head of the fire department, and so on. And what do the kids do? They start giving each other bribes. In other words, this is not what they were taught in school, but this is something that they'd observe from television, from hearing their parents talk about it, and so on. So kids get one lesson from school, and they get other lessons from outside society. And so you learn that when the teacher asks you what you should do, you give her the correct answer, and then you simply go off and do what you want to do anyway. The rules are often vague without penalties. Uh, recently, the government has brought in a rule that young adults who live away from their parents should visit their parents frequently or often. But they don't define what frequently or often mean, and there are no penalties attached to it. So, you know, makes the law an ass, really. Language, the, the language used in, 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 in laws in China is often intentionally vague, partly because the government realizes that, look, China's a big place, conditions are different in different places, so we must allow some sort of flexibility in how various rules are obeyed. But it, it simply allows local jurisdictions then to, to interpret the law as they, as, they, as they see fit. And a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of ambiguity there. And the other thing, of course, is that there are a lot of lightning campaigns, which, you know, oh, we've got to do this. Big campaign comes in, but pretty soon it's gone, and, you know, not much has really changed. There's also a fear of reporting breaches to the law. I've talked to a number of people who've seen crimes being committed, someone's purse being stolen or something like that. You don't intervene because you don't want to get involved or because you fear that the person who's doing this may actually take vengeance on you. There was a case in Dongguan of a Brazilian man who saw a woman getting into a, a taxi and someone about to steal her purse. And he put his, his, his brawly in the way to stop this person from doing it. And the person's other two companions came over and the three of them beat him to death. So, you know, you never know what someone else will do. Littering, littering really is a, is a modern problem. If we look at the past, almost any, anything people used, anything anyone would throw away, would, be, would biodegrade, or it would be eaten by the pigs or the chooks or the ants or whatever, so it pretty well disappeared. But then uh, when modern packaging came about and so on, this is no longer the case. It used to be also that, that rubbish was, a lot of rubbish was recycled. Some of it still is. You still see people in China going to rubbish bins and picking up plastic bottles and gathering them together and selling them because you can, you can get, uh, you earn some money that way. But for the most part, this is, not, this is not the case. And again, this is one of the things that Chinese tourists are, 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 are criticized for. But I mean, looking at looking at China, I remember being going onto the Tiananmen Square the day after, on the last day of National Day holidays in 2009, and given the fact that a million people had passed there that through there that day, the amount of rubbish was really quite small. 
So it's, you know, it's not as bad a problem as it used to be. There's more consciousness among the young about, about littering, but some of them also uh, really don't care. Service providers, service providers' attitudes under the uh, central planning regime were pretty awful. Uh, their attitudes were, were really very bad. Now, with commercialization, uh, people want to sell you, sell you goods and so on, so service providers are very good. And even, even in government organizations, I, I've been in places such as post offices, where the service was really very, very admirable. The worst I've seen is in universities where the administrators treat uh, students and staff, unless the staff are very high, treat them quite, quite badly. I mean, they give them very poor service. On the other hand, again, I've, I've seen a number of cases where people have given extraordinary service. Queuing is less a problem in the cities uh, than it probably used to be, although, again, I, you do see people ignoring queues sometimes. But, again, there's been a fair amount of, uh, of improvement in this area. Philanthropy, another uh, aspect of behavior that's related to, to, to civility and being concerned about strangers and so on, and concerned about other people. Uh, data from China are mixed. During the uh, very bad times of uh, 2008, the Wenchuan earthquake, 2010, the Yushu earthquake, and other disasters, people given lar very large amounts. But the amount given in 2008 was double what it was in 2007. The amount given in 2010 was double what it was in 2009. So uh, the uh, a number of the people who were involved in, in philanthropy organizations themselves say that you know we Ch Chinese do not yet have a culture of philanthropy. Uh, but another problem is that there have been scandals. In 2011, a scandal broke with the Chinese Red Cross by a young 22-year-old young woman dressed with her fur around her and her Gucci bag, leaning on her Lamborghini. And this was her little bull, which she drove in the south, and her, but she has her little, little horse, which she drives up north. And she's an official in the Chinese Red Cross. Well, actually, she wasn't an official, but her lover was. And uh, her lover was arrested, and she was later arrested, actually, for gambling and prostitution. But after this happened, after the scandal broke, again, charitable donations plummeted. Another problem with this is there is pressured philanthropy, where people, if you work, if you are a member of the party, if you work for the government, uh, if you work for a lot of large corporations, you're pressured. Uh, in fact, you may even be assessed that we have this emergency, you must give some, uh, so, a certain amount of money, and so on. And people, a lot of people resent that. Uh, and one, one fellow told me, he said, I had to give it work, but I didn't want to give involuntarily, so I went out and stood in line for hours so that I could give through another, give on my own. Good side of philanthropy is that voluntary blood donations are, uh, have worked out very well. The government did not think that there would be enough people willing to donate blood to, to satisfy the needs of blood in China up until, the, up until after the, the blood scandal at Hunan, where blood got mixed together, serum, blood serum got mixed together and given back to people, and uh, a lot of people ended up getting AIDS from this. And so they started in 1998 a voluntary system where there is uh, 
uh, some incentive that if you give blood, this gives you a right to have to, to, to get a transfusion if you need one yourself. And if you give a certain number of times, this extends to your family. And so a lot of workers take advantage of this. And a lot of young people, students and so on, they give because they think this is the right thing to do. This is, you know, I'm doing something for my fellow, uh, my fellow human beings. There have also been a number of foundations uh, in the past 10 years or so that have been founded. Uh, one by Jack Ma, who's the head of one of the heads of Alibaba. He and his uh, co-founder have just put three and a half billion U.S. dollars into a foundation which will aid uh, aid poverty, uh, education, and health. So they're doing they're doing some good things in this way. Go very quickly over tourists. If, if you've read newspapers, I'm sure you've seen lots of horror stories about about tourists, how the ties. And the Hong Kong people and the Singapore people really do not like people from China mainland at all. But a, a, a journalist for the South China Morning Post wrote an article and she said, you know, I noticed in the past year that the most read stories are those about bad behavior by tourists. And I wonder, why is this? So she went to one of the universities and asked an academic there who was in the tourism studies. And he said, they're not being rude. They're just being Chinese. They behave this way back home. They don't, you know, they often don't cue. Uh, they don't obey. They don't obey signs. Uh, they take advantage of all sorts of things. This is just the way, the way they, they are there. They have not, you know, come up to uh, a more charitable level uh, or civil level at this point. The Chinese government has put up these rules for tourists abroad, and there are there are a number of versions of these, but uh, there. All sorts of uh, rules that they, they want people to obey. And they've recently come out and said that they're going to start actually fining people who misbehave. There have been fights on aircraft and people opening the emergency doors on aircraft as the planes are about to take off and you know, all kinds of things such as this. Now, I'm trying to explain why, what brings about civility and so on. When I did the research on Taiwan, because people started becoming more civil around the time that China, that Taiwan began to democratize, and I thought, well, democratization may be important. That you know, getting the government off people's backs make make them you know less grouchy and so on, and uh, you know, happier with them uh, with their conditions and so on. But most people don't really worry about the government. I mean, unless you, unless you make Unless you draw the government's attention to yourself by doing something or saying something which is going to cause alarm bells in, uh, among the authorities, the government basically leaves you alone. Uh, governments, I, governance, I think, is important. People are very dissatisfied about corruption, about injustice, about unsafe products in China, uh, unsafe food and things such as this, but they're not that you know, the, 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 these are, in a sense, side issues. I think that there's no sufficient condition for civility, but there are two necessary ones. A desire for civility, and I say this because Mao Zedong, in a sense, he was almost a champion for being uncivil. He was a rather uncouth person uh, who made no pretenses about any kind of bourgeois niceties and so on. He's often heard a number of people from Taiwan and from, uh, from the PRC saying that the culture revolution basically ruined 
uh, Chinese uh, uh, culture, that it, it destroyed Chinese ethical behavior and so on. I don't think, though, that that's a terribly difficult uh, problem in China. I think that there's pretty much evidence that a lot of people really want a civil, civilized society. The other factor is something that comes from the work of uh, Ronald Englehart and Christian Velsel. Englehart, since the beginning of his, uh, his career, has been working with something called the World Values Survey. And he's they've come up with, and they're able to show this pretty convincingly on the basis of surveys that take place in 70, 80 countries around the world and have been going since the 1970s and repeated every, every few years, that when a society reaches a post-industrial stage where a lot of work is knowledge work, uh, where people are no longer simply out to make as much money as they can and willing to sacrifice everything else for that, when they want to make money, yes, but also to have some leisure time to be able to fulfill themselves, to do what they would like to do with their lives, that this is very individuating and it also brings about a, a tolerance of differences in other people. If you, want to, if you want to do what you want to do and want other people to accept this, you must accept it in others. And he's, he's, they're able to show that around when you get to this sort of, this level, you get much more tolerance of gender equality, ethnic equality, racial equality, these sorts of things. You get more tolerance and consideration. And I think that this is probably as close an explanation as I can come to what happened in Taiwan. By the early 1990s, Taiwan was at a fairly high income level. It was democratizing. It was becoming more liberal in a number of ways. Uh, people were able to express their Taiwaneseness, they were able to express their, their political ideas and other sorts of ideas and so on. And there were a lot of reforms taking place in, in, in Taiwan society. Uh, the, the, I read something just a week and a half ago or so that kind of puts a crimp into this. And that is that I read something by the former editor of the Straits Times, Singapore Straits Times. He'd been to Taiwan and he came back to Singapore and he wrote an editorial in which he said, Taiwan society is so nice, is so people are so polite and so civil, Singapore society is terrible. He says that Singapore society people, uh, they don't recognize each uh, different, people in different ethnic communities, uh, there's very little civility, even, even within communities, people drive very badly, uh, they don't yield to other people, that they don't hold doors for other people and things such as that, for example, these the, the things that, that he himself talks about. Singapore and Taiwan should be about the same level in terms of this material well-being, uh, well in terms of post-industrial uh, post society. The two differences that I can see is that, uh, one, is that Taiwan had a great difficulty in becoming a society in which people see themselves as being from Taiwan or being Taiwanese. You had different communities. You had the mainlander community. You had the Hokkien-speaking community. You had the, the Hakka-speaking community. You had the Aborigines. You had people in this unit, work unit, and this people in this work unit, and so on. And it was really very much um, scattered, a bunch of different groups in society. But in the, by the 1990s, uh, again, this came about with democratization. Taiwanese identity was able to be talked about. The government had tried to suppress it before. On Singapore, 
I'm not sure at what levels, at a, whether there is, at a social level, there is a Singapore identity. The other big difference is in terms of equality. Uh, Singapore uh, Gini coefficients are around 0.46. In Taiwan, even after becoming less equal than it was 20 or 30 years ago, it's still at around 0 0.35. So these are the things I'm trying to, I'm trying to uh, work out now as to, as to what exactly will explain what happens in a society uh, to allow it to become civil. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. For more information about Griffith University's research, engagement and activity in the Asia-Pacific region, visit griffith.edu.au slash Asia.